You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the internet's one-stop shop for all things guy love that doesn't require a special lubricant. Let's face the facts about me and you, a love unspecified. Though I'm proud to call you Chocolate Bear, the crowd will always talk and stare. I feel exactly those feelings too, and that's why I keep them inside. Cause this bear can't bear the world's disdain, and sometimes it's easier to hide than explain. Our guy love, that's all it is. Guy love, he's mine, I'm his. There's nothing about it in our eyes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. My name's Sean Eagle, and my job for this podcast is to cover the Green Lantern comic books from cover date June 1990 all the way up until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns of all time. Once again, I'd like to thank everyone for downloading the show and listening. I've had a really fun time recording these episodes and giving you synopses of these comics, and I hope in turn you were having a good time listening to me drone on about them. But today marks something special. This is what I actually got into doing this podcast for. It's covering the comics that relate to Guy Gardner. And here today we are going to get our first look at Guy in his solo series. And I, I hate to say it, I hate to spoil it, but I've read ahead and I am pleased to say that this has been as good as I remembered it to be. This is going to be a fun run over the next couple of weeks, and I hope you guys can pick this stuff up. Unfortunately, it's not in trade anywhere, so you'll have to go and get the singles. But if you can, go find them. I bet they've got to be pretty cheap. Listen along with me, read along, and just be prepared to have a fun time with it. But... Uh, with that preamble out of the way, I really don't have anything mm, too important to say, so let's go ahead and get with some promos for a couple of podcasts that you should be listening to, and then we'll come back with our review of the epic storyline of Guy and his Nort, starting in Green Lantern number nine. <laughs> James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands! Battle station! This is Captain Kirk. Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands, battle station.
Star Trek Monthly Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion, Krypton is doomed! Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Millions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man Rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? <laughs> well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting the thrilling adventures of Superman. 
podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limson.com And we're back. So, with those awesome promos for those awesome podcasts that everyone who's listening to this should be listening to, I'd like to get on to what I've been waiting for ever since I started up this show, ever since the concept of this show ever came up, the guy and his Nort storyline. So I hope you are all prepared to hear me gush about this, because I tell you... Oh, my nipples explode with the light! Um, well, maybe I'm not that enthused. But I am ready as ever to get on with the review of Green Lantern number 9. So here we go. Green Lantern number 9 has a cover date of February 1991 with a cover price of $1 US, $1.25 Canada, and 50 pence UK. The title of the book was The Two and Only. The writer was Gerard Jones, the inker was Bruce Patterson, the letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist was Anthony Tolan, assistant editor was Kevin Dooley, and editor was Andy Helfer. And in a change from last month, Instead of artist Pat Broderick, we are graced with the incredible pencils of one Mr. Joe Staten. His artwork has graced comic books for years ahead. He's done the All-Star Squadron. He did the Green Lantern Corps before this. I'm just going to keep gushing about this until... Get on with it! Um, okay. Here's the review. The story opens with a shot of Green Lantern Guy Gardner flying over the transplanted cities on Oa. As Guy muses about the variety of inhabitants, he stops at the general store that was brought along with Hope Springs to pick up some provisions. As Guy is, quote-unquote, acquiring some food, one of the locals asks him when they will be going home. Guy retorts that if he had anything to do about it, they would all be back home, himself included. But what do the Guardians care about the wishes of one who saved the entire planet? Hearing this, Hot Widow Mom Rose pipes up and says that Hal Jordan saved the planet. Guy, certain that Hal will be getting his job back as the only Green Lantern of Sector 2814, rebukes Rose, but still finds some time to flirt with her. 
As Guy flies out of the store, without paying for the food, mind you, Rose wonders how a person could be so prideful, arrogant, and barbaric. Her young son, Toby, just wonders if he can come over for supper. We then cut to Hal Jordan and John Stewart having a conversation of what their assignments with the Corps will be. Hal mentions that he'd be okay staying on Oa, trying to get the alien city sent home, and patching up things with Rose. John is just hoping for a nice, strong cup of coffee. On that queue, Guy arrives with some fresh, freeze-dried coffee that he, quote-unquote, acquired from the store. Hal chides him for taking provisions from the people of Hope Springs, but Guy says this might be his last time to have Earth food before the Guardians ship him off into deep space for recruitment duty. John, not caring who gets what assignment, just wants his CD player back from Earth so he can listen to the new Barbara Streisand album. And thus, Guy Mockery ensues. Until it is broken up by the floaty heads of the Guardians of the Universe. They've made their decision. John will watch over the alien cities on Oa, how recruiting lanterns for the Corps, and Guy will be Lantern of Sector 2814. To put it lightly, John and Hal are stunned by the decision. But since Guy has more super brain contacts and a lot more to prove to them, the Guardians feel like the choice is for the best. After the shock is wore off, Hal says goodbye to Guy and John, but not before warning Guy to watch himself as Earth's only Green Lantern. Guy acquiesces and tells Hal to find some recruits with some nice, quote-unquote, prospects, if you know what I mean. John isn't amused by Guy's annex, but Guy says Hal knows he's joking. And now that he's the Green Lantern of Sector 2814, the babes won't be able to keep their hands off of him. At the JLI headquarters in New York City, things aren't going the way Guy had planned. Ice and Fire think that Guy is still playing second fiddle to Hal. John, Batman, and Blue Beetle ask him to keep it quiet while the real superheroes get things done. And Maxwell Lord bolts up looking for Hal when Guy tells him that Earth's only Green Lantern is here. Frustrated, Guy heads to his room to talk with Kilowog. Realizing that he needs to take his heroics to the masses, Guy heads out onto the town to try and find some trouble. Any kind of trouble. But oddly enough, nothing much bad is happening in New York City at the moment. Still, Guy manages to stop a mid-air collision and destroy the home of Politico with mob connections. Granted, he destroyed the smaller plane in the process, and the Politico might not be the one he saw in the news, but whatever, he's fighting crime. Not satisfied with his work in New York City, Guy flies off to Bulbania, the last communist bastion in Eastern Europe to deliver a little Lady Liberty construct justice. His job nearly done, Guy ponders if he should try to do something else to please the liberals, like free some South African prisoners or save some dolphins. As Guy wonders where he can scrounge up some dolphins, a voice greets him as a fellow Green Lantern. Turning around, Guy sees Nort, a bipedal dog Green Lantern, who won't drop the idea that he and Guy are Earth's two Green Lanterns. That is, until Guy punches the f*** out of him. You see, Guy is certain that he is the Earth's only Green Lantern, but Nort claims that the Guardians made him a Lantern at large. Guy respectfully disagrees, and pulls Nort's ring down around his snout. Flying off, Guy sees a disaster that will truly show his heroics, an inhabited island with a live volcano. 
guy creates a giant ring construct slide which shunts the lava away from the frightened villagers and into the ocean. Pleased with himself, Guy decides to check on the islanders, hoping that they will reward him with an Easter Island-type heads and the promise of topless tribesmen. But his celebration is cut short by a giant ring-powered cork that caps off the active volcano. Unfortunately, North's good intentions cause the volcano to explode, sending Guy flying and the islanders searching for escape rafts. After Guy subdues Nort, he calls on the Guardians in the universe to sort this dilemma out. The floaty head of a Guardian appears to sort out why Nort has a power ring, but it only leads to more questions. The Guardian orders Guy to investigate who could have given Nort a power ring so similar to the ones the Guardians made. So, after explaining that the natives are just showing their gratitude by throwing spears at them, Guy and Nort head off to find the Guardians who made this terrible terrier an actual Green Lantern. Okay, confession time. This is the story, and this is the arc that basically brought me into being a fan of Guy Guard. Both the action-filled story, with its ridiculous elements, and the great art by Joe Staten just really set it up for this character to be something really unique out of the characters in the 90s. Yes, Guy was an anti-hero. Yes, he was not loved by his fellow companions. Yes, he was a bit outside the norm uh, for most of the DC characters. But it was this and all of his other unique kind of failings that really garnered him to me as a character. I think I was really drawn to him because of the fact that he was the number two guy. He was the guy who could have been the big star of the Green Lantern universe. He was the guy who could have been number one. He could have been the Hal Jordan character. He had the same heroic ideals. He had the same courage. He had the same willpower. Unfortunately, and I hear this is kind of a retcon, he wasn't chosen to be Earth's Green Lantern simply because Hal Jordan was closer. The Ring had selected two green two people who would be perfect candidates for Green Lantern. That was Hal and Guy, but Guy just happened to be further away. And I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the underdog characters, and Guy is the perfect example of an underdog character. But with that amount of gushing out of the way, let's get to some salient points in my notes. First off, I just want to say how excited I am to see Joe Staten drawn the character. This is the design that I will always think of whenever I see the image of Guy Gardner in my head. He's got, unlike the Pat Broderick look, a much thinner and less muscular form. He's more of a running back than a linebacker, if that makes any sense to people who don't give two rats asses about football. Plus, with Staten, you get the excellent design of Nort. When he was first introduced in the Justice League International story with the Millennium crossover, Kevin McGuire drew him sort of as a 
Well, more of a Chewbacca-looking character. His head was kind of just rounded and sort of fell into his body. He was supposed to be a dog, but he didn't look very dog-like. Staten draws him as a bipedal Scottish Terrier. Or perhaps a Schnauzer. But he looks a bit more in the face like a Scottish Terrier, even though his coloring doesn't really look like the traditional Scotty. It is just awesome artwork, and it really lends for the idea in this story that Nort, really at his heart, is just a dog. A fun-loving, playful, wanna-please-his-master type dog. And if you're a person who can't get behind a good story about a guy and his faithful dog companion, then I weep for you. But let's stop with the gushing. Let's go on to more notes. Uh, first, for the cover, we've got a great cover of Guy and Nort flying through space, uh, orbiting looks like over Africa. And I really like the design in the cover. It looks like both Guy and Nort are swimming through space. And Guy, of course, looks like he's doing the breaststroke, which I guess is not ironic in any way at all. And Guy looks like, or Nort looks like he's just paddling through the water like a dog would. It's it's a really neat design. Page one, we've got the opening splash with Guy flying over the transplanted cities, and on the left-hand corner, we get some aliens that look like the Zudarians, except they're sporting Hawkman-type wings growing out of their backs. Now, I don't know if these are actual different aliens that we just haven't seen, or whether the Zudarians have decided to steal some of the Thanagarian anth metal wings and are just trying them out. Page 3, we see that the food that Guy steals is typical redneck fare. We've got some delicious moon pies and goo-goo clusters, so there's going to be some healthy eating on the planet Oa. Same page, panel 2. Here's something that we don't really see very often. Uh, Guy flies out of the top of the general store where all the people of Hope Springs have gathered, and instead of crashing through the ceiling, he uses his ring to sort of warp the matter of the uh, ceiling so he can pass through it. It's a neat effect that I've seen done a lot of times in the comics and a couple of times in some of the animated shows, and it's you know kind of trivial here, but it is kind of neat to see. Page 5, panel 2. Hal is sporting one wicked pompadour. I'm looking at that, and I can't think of anything but Elvis. I mean, it is it is large and in charge. I know what Staten was doing to try and distinguish Hal. I mean, he's still got the uh, white sideburns, the sort of Reed Richard look, but man, he's got a 1950s pompadour going on. Interesting art choice for Staten. Same page, panel three. We get perhaps one of the funniest panels in the comic. This image of Guy looking at John after he said that he likes Streisand, and the look on his face as he says, You listen to Streisand? It's just one of those moments where Guy just rags on John for listening to Barbara Streisand and being a fan of it. And it's, yeah, I know it's kind of, well, gay bashing because it's a horrible stereotype that gay men like to listen to Barbara Streisand. But Guy plays it up, and he plays it up as sort of just ribbing and taking the piss out of each other that a bunch of friends would do. I like that characterization in this book, that 
even though that they don't get along, they can still rib on each other. It's fun. Page 6, it's time to pay another tribute to Joe Staten and his artwork. He does some really great facial expressions on Hal and Guy. Guy is kind of looking at Hal and thinking that he's going to get the uh, Earth job, and he's kind of resolved to it. And then after the Guardians say that Hal's going to be going out into space doing the recruiting, Hal has this incredibly wide-eyed, shocked look. I I think Staten does facial expressions as well as Kevin McGuire did in the Justice League International books. These two guys really know how to get a person's emotions across by doing great artwork with their face. And page 7, panel 5, we get more... I'm going to gush about this, I guess. Great state and artwork as guys flying up after hearing that he's been chosen as the Green Lantern of Sector 2814. It's really just a moment of pure joy as Guy flies up in the atmosphere. Really cool shot. Really cool visual. Page 8, we get another pun from Guy uh, as Hal is heading off to go start recruiting Green Lanterns for the Corps. Guy asks him to look for some lanterns with some really nice prospects. And as he says the word prospects, he holds his hands up above his chest, obviously thinking the prospects that the Green Lantern should be having are very large mammary glands. Not opposed to that. And uh, if I recall, uh, probably later in the uh, series, we will be getting some Green Lanterns with very large prospects. So look forward to that. Pages 9 through 10, we get these panels of Guy just not being able to catch a break. He's been given the job of the one true Green Lantern of Sector 2814, and no one will take him seriously. Not Fire and Ice, not the Martian Manhunter, not even Maxwell Lord, who is a goofball in his own right. You know, all Guy really ever wanted was to be Green Lantern of Earth, and now that he is, no one takes him seriously. So I can understand his frustration. Then, of course, on page 10, panel 5, Kilowog! Yeah, I'm going to make Kilowog sort of the Bibbo character of this run. So, big ol' hat tip to Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bailey over from Crisis to Crisis, who are doing the same thing with the Bibbo character over there. I love Kilowog. He's been sort of the Jiminy Cricket character to Guy throughout the series, and I really like the way he's portrayed here. And, of course, the state and artwork around him is just gorgeous. Pages 12 through 13, we see Guy's got good intentions of being Green Lantern of Earth, but he really doesn't think things out as we see him, you know, trying to stop a couple of planes from possibly colliding and basically smashing one of the planes with a Green Lantern construct of a fly swatter, causing the uh, occupant of the plane to have to parachute out. And then he has a Green Lantern construct bulldozer knocked down the uh, house of the supposed mafioso that after knocking it down Guy questions whether or not it was the actual mafioso that he thought it was. And finally heading to the fictitious nation of Bulbania to do a little mopping up with a giant Lady Liberty construct. And it's kind of neat, the Lady Liberty construct looks like it has... Kind of the face of Power Girl, 
Mm, it's a little off, but you could see that. Plus, the tablet she's holding in the hand opposite her torch has at the top the words, My Guy. So, it's obviously a Guy Gardner construct. Page 15, panel 3. I already mentioned this, that Staten drew Nort more like a Scotty than the sort of Chewbacca-looking character that uh, McGuire drew, but I thought I'd just point it out here. I really liked the design. Page 16, panel 2. We get the first mention of Nort's uncle, who is the Green Lantern who got the ring for his nephew, and we'll be introduced to him in an issue or so. Page 17, we get Guy actually doing some effective heroic work here and creating a giant slide construct to shunt the lava flow away from the islanders. It's good use of the uh, Green Lantern ring, and it's actual, intelligent, thought-out heroing from Guy. Page 18, we get some really goofy and probably a bit borderline racist uh, stereotypical language for the islanders. Let me see if I can read some of this. It's all one big word. Anahamazuga Kukamunga and Lealoa Hayatrina. Just really goofy, but guess what? It gets even better. Page 19, after Nort capped off the volcano with a giant cork, you see this massive explosion that just blows Guy through the sky, and there's a couple of panels where Guy is flying by, and Nort's floating there, musing if he did the right thing, and as Guy flies by, he yanks Nord away. It's it's a great comedic bunch of panels. I'm, I just can't say how much I'm digging this. Page 20, Guy's got Nort sort of chained up, and he's basically applying a bunch of sort of Three Stooges as torture devices to him. One of them is a wheel of hammers, which is spinning around and bonking him on the head, and the other one is a wheel of boots, which is spinning around and kicking him in the butt, and then there's a third one, which is a wheel of boxing gloves, which is spinning around and punching him in the gut. Guy's pretty much taking it, taking old Nort to task for essentially being an idiot. Also on page 20, panel 5, we get the awesome Islander line of Mecca Lecca High, Mecca Heine Ho. And if you guys don't get the reference, I suggest you go check out the Pee Wee Herman show. Especially if you can find it, and it's probably on the YouTubes, the actual original Pee Wee Herman HBO special. Jombi the Genie, who's one of the characters in quote-unquote Pee Wee's Playhouse, what name that at the time, is a genie who's basically a head in the box who grants Pee-wee's wishes by saying the statement, Mecca Lecca High, Mecca Heine Ho. It's fun, and Pee-wee Herman was great fun. It's a nice little homage slash Easter egg that's kind of fun to catch in these books. Page 20, panel 6, we get more Guardian floaty heads, so... This seems to be kind of a staple in these comics, so I'm going to keep mentioning them. And, of course, page 22, we get the other horrible stereotype of the Islanders hurling or chucking spears at the floaty head of the Guardian and Guy and Nord. Yeah, it's probably not the most politically correct image they could have in a comic book, but... 
I don't think it's intended as something stereotypically mean-spirited, so I'm just going to let it go with that. But with my notes of the story out of the way, let's go move on to the ads. We've got on the front inside cover, uh, there are hockey cards, and then there is upper deck. And we get upper deck hockey cards shielded to you by the great one himself, Wayne Gretzky. So I guess, you know, if you aren't excited enough with football cards or baseball cards or basketball cards or highlight cards, there's always hockey cards. You get an ad for Mega Man 3 from the Nintendo Entertainment System as they ask, is there anything else you need to know? Well, since I never play the Mega Man games, I really would need to know if this is actually a good game to buy or not. I'm not going to shell my hard-earned money out on a game, especially a sequel that might not be as good as the original, so that's what I'd like to know. Next page, we can awesome splash page for the advertisement for the greatest Flash stories ever told. A 288-page hardcover spanning 50 years of the Flash. We've got images of Barry, Wally, in his Kid Flash uniform, and Jake Eric all running out of the pages of the comic as Captain Cold and Gorilla Grodd and Captain Boomerang, you know, lurk behind him. It's an awesome, awesome panel, and it's odd, I guess... At the time, this was used as a promotion for the upcoming TV series, and I think it would probably stand on its own as a great, you know, compilation of Flash stories, but I guess they're wanting to promote the TV show, so I don't fault them for that. We get another ad for the Nintendo Game Boy version of Gargoyle's Quest, graphics so real you'll forget it's only a game, and again, being that this was the pre-color Game Boy, I'm going to have trouble believing that you would actually forget that it's only a game. Another Great Eastern Convention ad with the New York special guest being Eric Larson, Art Adams, and Mike Zeck, and the Minneapolis guest being Stan Lee, Jim Lee, no relation, and John Romita Jr. So that looks like it could have been a pretty fun convention. We get another Ultimate Game Club Tells All ad, and instead of a Fleer uh, baseball card ad, we get a National Baseball card ad, and it doesn't look as impressive as the Fleer ones. Uh, The main guy they have on here that I notice is Pee Wee Reese, so we're not really getting a Daryl Strawberry baseball player. We're getting kind of second stringers, and you can kind of figure out that because I have never heard of National Baseball Cards. After that, you get a great splash page for Detective Comics celebrating Batman's 600th appearance. And the story is the case of the Chemical Syndicate. And you get Batman in a sort of knee-to-his-chest leaping pose as he's looks like he's leaping over all the caged-up criminals that he's put behind jail. You can see Two-Face and the Penguin and the Joker and the Mad Hatter and Rayshaw Ghoul and the Riddler, and it's it's all a really dynamic art, and it posts a lot of great writers and artists on it, including Finger, Kane, Marv Wolfman, Jim Aparo, Norm Brayfocal, Dick Giordano, Alan Grant. This is going to be the book to buy, especially if you're a Batman fan. Later on, we get a full-page Mile High Comics ad. Mm, Nothing really much to see here. We again get the typical mishmash of muscles, drawing superheroes, and comic book collecting ad. 
And it's odd, I haven't mentioned this before, but at the bottom of the page for this mishmash ad is an ad for the American Heart Association. And I guess they're trying to promote healthiness in the comic books by putting American Heart Association ads in there. For some reason, I feel like going out and getting a cheeseburger. I don't know about you. And on the last page of the letters column, we get an ad for Justice League Europe saying, Who is the Crimson Fox? And since I haven't read Justice League Europe, I don't know who the Crimson Lead Fox is, but I've got to make the assumption from the picture that she is a Catwoman wannabe that would probably today be drawn by Ed Benes. Outside back cover, we've got an ad for WWF WrestleMania Challenge, Only the Strongest Survive, with the roided-up images of it looks like the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan doing his stereotypical shirt-ripped thing and gritting his teeth at us. So, for all you wrestling fans from the Nintendo Entertainment System, here's your opportunity to go turnbuckle to turnbuckle with some of your friends. But the one ad that I wanted to focus on in this issue is some ads that we're going to be covering in the next couple issues that aren't quite Hostess ads, and they're not even quite Capri Sun ads, but they do have that sort of goofy, comic-y feel, and I thought I'd give them a little extra treatment here. These are the Three Musketeer Adventure ads, and uh, let me set it up for you. The artwork is stereotypically 90s, with the ridiculously buff sort of characters and just over-the-top settings. This particular one featuring a military outfit in the middle of the Peruvian desert. So, here we go. Deep in the Peruvian desert, military authorities are alarmed and baffled by a strange discovery. And we got these two military guys looking through binoculars saying, A giant three, and what appears to be several red letters. A three? Three what? Some kind of alien language? And the other military person says, We can't tell, sir. It's just too big. Then, of course, the guys look up as they see a chopper flying by. He goes, Airborne, can you make it out? And we cut to the next panel. We've got the guy in the chopper with the prerequisite overly big mirrored sunglasses saying as the sweepers clear off miles of sand the uh, military guy in the chopper says you're not gonna believe it sir and we come to the final panel as we see a giant unearthed three musketeers bar and the guy in the chopper says should we tell the president and of course the military general on the ground says no we'll eat it ourselves and you get the final splash of where will three musketeers turn up next and we get the closing quote that three musketeers big on chocolate so it's interesting that we have both an advertisement for the american heart association and an advertisement for a giant three musketeers bar in the same comic not that i'm opposed to capitalism in any way make money how you'd like but with that final ad out of the way, it looks like that's going to be it for this issue sode. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys are getting ready for some really fun Guy Gardenery goodness. We're going to come back next week with the second part of the story, and you're going to get introduced to the actual Green Lanterns of the universe. Trust me, if you don't know who they are, you're going to be quite surprised. But anyway... Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. I hope you guys are enjoying the show. 
and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respected copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's show was Guy Love, performed by Zach Braff and Donald Faison, from the television show Scrubs. You can't download this song from iTunes, but you can download episodes of the show through iTunes, or better yet, you can go to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com, click on the Amazon.com link at the top of the website, and purchase a DVD season or two of Scrubs for yourself. With that click, you'll be supporting a podcast that I love and am a small part of. So please, do what you can.